I'd like to introduce our keynote speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Gerber. He is a board certified family physician and owner of South Suburban Family Medicine in Littleton, Colorado. He is widely known as Denver's diet doctor. For decades, Dr. Gerber has researched the science of carbohydrate and fat metabolism, insulin resistance, inflammation, and chronic metabolic disease. And he'll be sharing some of that information with us today. Dr. Gerber also co-authored the book, Eat Rich, Live Long, with Ivor Cummins. Thank you, Dr. Gerber. I want to thank uh, Ian for the invitation to speak and hello to everyone uh, listening. So this talk is an overview of low-carb nutrition and how we can use food as a tool to treat and prevent chronic disease. The objectives. We're going to look at the metabolic uh, syndrome and some uh, chronic conditions such as insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. We'll look at common pathways and mechanisms to uh, some of these chronic conditions. And we'll look at clinical tools to best evaluate not only insulin resistance, but also cardiovascular disease. We're going to compare standard diets to low-carb diets. And we'll look at lipedema and lymphedema in the context of uh, diet. And we'll finish with practical approaches to the treatment and uh, prevention. So not to burden you with statistics, but we're dealing with the triple burden of disease. And we all know them well. They are obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. And it's fair to say that at least two-thirds of the adult U.S. population have at least one or more of these conditions. And if we could find a common theme that connects these conditions, we could certainly help our patients. And there is a common theme known as the metabolic syndrome. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. So the metabolic syndrome, what we like to refer to as the insulin resistance syndrome, because it defines the, sec uh, the central mechanism, was uh, first described by the late Dr. Jerry Reven back at the, uh, in 1988 during the Frederick Banting lecture series. Now, Frederick Banting was famous for co-discovering insulin, and the series was named after him, but we shouldn't confuse him with William Banting. Uh, William Banting was actually an undertaker, and back in the late 1800s, he went to his doctor because he had an obesity problem. And with the help of his doctor, he wrote the letter on corpulence, and that um, was basically a, a, a dietary guideline telling people to reduce uh, sugar, potato, and bread from the diet, which was essentially the first low-carb diet. And I just think it's interesting because these two bantings are related uh, in, and both had an interest in um, diet and uh, diabetes. But I digress. Um, let me just show you here. I actually had the opportunity to meet, to to visit the grave of William Banting when I was in uh, Kensington, Lund London a few years back. But anyway, getting back to the main topic of the uh, metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome uh, is defined by five criteria and they are glucose intolerance, hyperinsulinemia, and what we refer to as atherogenic dyslipidemia. And we're actually looking at the quality of the cholesterol, not necessarily the, the quantity. And atherogenic dyslipidemia is defined by a low HDL, high triglyceride, uh, increase in small particles. And you can see that LDL cholesterol is not uh, a criteria. And what you'll, you'll find out is that atherogenic dys 
lipidemia is merely an indirect marker for a hyperinsulinemia. We also look for elevated blood pressure and abdominal obesity. And why the metabolic syndrome is important, if you have three of the five criteria, you are at great risk for some of these common medical uh, conditions that we see today, including type 2 diabetes, atherosclerosis, coronary heart disease, and stroke. And now what we understand is that the insulin resistance syndrome is associated with virtually every uh, medical condition that we see in um, modern society. And when I first learned about the metabolic syndrome uh, some 25 years ago, uh, it made a lot of sense because not only did it define a central mechanism, but it defined the best diet, specifically a low carb diet. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So along this, the, the same timeline as um, Dr. Rebin, we find Dr. Joseph Kraft. And uh, he spent a career studying uh, hyperinsulinemia where he performed an insulin assay uh, in over uh, 16,000 people where he administers uh, glucose and measures uh, insulin over a, uh, and glucose over a five hour period of time. And um, what he discovered was that uh, insulin levels rise actually years before um, glucose uh, goes up. And we wanna take a look at um, some of his data right now. So uh, again, after administering uh, the glucose load, I'm showing you some of the insulin patterns. And this is the normal pattern one called insulinemia, where you can see that uh, insulin levels uh, don't rise up above 60 micro-units. And superimposed are the three patterns of hyperinsulinemia. And you can see in, on the red graph where the um, uh, insulin goes up to almost uh, 200 uh, micro-units. So this uh, truly represents hyperinsulinemia. Now, what I'm not showing you here are the glucose curves, but again, Dr. Kraft um, identified insulin going up years, actually decades before uh, insulin levels uh, go up. So that's important to uh, understand. Now, Catherine Crofts from uh, Auckland, New Zealand, reanalyzed the data, and she came up with a simple clinical uh, tool and that is to measure a two-hour insulin. And so if your two-hour insulin after glucose challenge is less than 30, it's normal. If it's over 40, uh, you, you have uh, a definite problem or hyperinsulinemia. And this is what we do each and every day in our office. Now, thanks to the work of Dr. Reven, Dr. Kraft, and others, we understand the natural history of type 2 diabetes. And Let's take a look at this. So you can see the timeline at year zero, you get your diagnosis of type, type, type two diabetes. And this is a very easy diagnosis to make. Your A1C is over 6.5. Your fasting glucose is over 126. A random glucose is over 200 or after a glucose challenge, it's over 200. And the question is, are we really helping our patients uh, at the time they get their diagnosis of type two diabetes? And really, we aren't because there's so much going on uh, years before. So let's step back in time and indeed take a look at what's going on. So uh, 20 years before the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, hyperinsulinemia sets in, according to uh, Dr. Kraft's work. And uh, the problem is that uh, most, most healthcare professionals don't measure insulin levels like, like we do or like Dr. Kraft was suggesting. And, they're not even in the, uh, the guidelines as a screening tool. 
15 years before the diagnosis, insulin resistance would set in if you measured things such as a HOMA IR or a glucose clamp. 10 years before the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, uh, you can discover impaired glucose tolerance. So should you do uh, a two-hour glucose challenge and measure the glucose at uh, two hours being over 140? But again, most healthcare professionals don't even bother with glucose challenges like we do in our office. And then five years before the diagnosis, cardiovascular disease sets in. Should you do the right measurement and using the right tool, such as a coronary artery calcium squirm, we'll talk about that in a little. But as you can see, before you get the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, you're sick for decades, and yet you're unaware. Even healthcare professionals uh, are unaware because they're not doing the right tests. And of course, by the time you're type 2 diabetic, you're, you're an absolute mess. So the point here is that you have to have an early level of suspicion, and you have to do the right measurement, or you're not going to know that there's a problem. So when it comes to the metabolic syndrome, let's talk about the elephant in the room. And that is specifically nutrition or low carb nutrition. Now you have to understand that uh, when it came to nutrition, Dr. Reven, who uh, was an endocrinologist and Dr. Kraft, who was a pathologist, didn't know a whole lot about nutrition. They just went along with the mainstream guidelines but it was later in their careers that they really understood the importance of low-carb diet. And we feel that they missed this golden opportunity to advance nutrition science. Well, now it's our turn. So let's spend a few minutes and look at standard diets versus low-carb diets. And there's many ways to describe standard diets, but we're going to refer to it as the perfectly balanced, healthy diet, just to point out some of the fallacies. So here's your perfectly balanced, healthy diet. And it's mathematically precise because uh, a third of the energy comes equally from each macronutrient, be it fat, protein, and carbohydrate. It doesn't matter. You see, the convention is that all calories are alike. And also the, the food quality is unimportant. It's just about calories. And that's based on the first law of thermodynamics. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But that just simply tells us what a calorie is. And it seems that your health is determined based on this positive or, or negative energy balance, what's referred to as calories in and calories out. And what I don't like about this is that these conventions simply emphasize the law of physics or thermodynamics without looking at the laws of physiology or how the body actually processes the energy. So the first law of thermodynamics. It's interesting, uh, you, what you do is you put uh, food energy into a closed uh, chamber, a bomb calorimeter, you ignite it, measure rise in temperature, and you can see how, much cal how many calories are in a particular substance. And that basically is uh, telling you that a calorie in equals calories out in uh, a closed system. Now, Yes, this is what happens in the body, but it's much more complicated than, than this. It's not just about uh, the energy that comes into the closed system. So some more conventions regarding the perfectly balanced healthy diet that we should reduce total fat and saturated fat. Well, why should we do that? Number one, for weight loss. Well, we all know that uh, fat is caloric dense, 9 kcals versus protein and carbs, which have 4 kcals.
and that if we simply reduce fat fat consumption, we're we're, we're going to reduce calories because calories in, calories out are the only thing that uh, mattered in this convention. Okay, right? Now there's also um, a second convention. It's and it's convenient because it goes along with the first one that we should reduce saturated fat in the diet because it reduces our cardiovascular uh, risk. Well, why is that? Because saturated fat elevates this supposedly bad LDL cholesterol. It is true, it does tend to elevate LDL a little bit, uh, but it, the convention says that this bad cholesterol clogs the arteries, apparently. And that cholesterol is somehow this dangerous substance that when it reaches a certain concentration in the blood, it smashes its way through the blood vessel wall and causes disease. And so this is a very simplistic understanding of the mechanisms. And really, um, it's much more complicated and involved than that. And what should we do as a result of this convention? Well, we should replace the saturated fat with carbs and or polyunsaturated fatty acids such as canola corn and soybean oil which we now understand is very inflammatory and it's unfortunate because it's exactly this recommendation that is causing the disease process that we're trying to address that's a pity in the convention we're trained as healthcare professionals to uh, accept that people have a lack of willpower this is terrible that uh, um, it's their fault that they fail, fail to eat less and exercise more. Problem is we're not giving them the right tools. And so what we get is serving up disease for 50 years. And so we really need a better solution. And so this is where low carb comes in and the idea or the understanding that all calories are not alike uh, when it comes to how the body metabolizes those calories. And specifically, it is the food energy that is processed differently in the body. So let's look at the food energy processing for a minute and uh, how we can describe that. So uh, we talked about the bomb calorimeter, which can measure, measure um, a calorie in a closed system. But when it comes to the processing of energy, we want to measure cellular respiration, what's going on inside the, the body. And we use a metabolic chamber to do that. And so it's similar in that it's a closed system, but now you're putting a, a living being or human into that system. You can exercise them or not exercise them, give them food or fast them and measure things such as aerobic threshold, um, oxidative uh, potential and, and so forth. And what you discover is under different circumstances, the energy is being processed differently. Now, guess what? In both these scenarios, calories in equals calories out but it's the processing of the energy that we're really wanting to take a look at, and that's the interesting part. So let's look further at the food energy processing, and this is really a, uh, an energy flow chart. And rather than calling it calories in and calories out, I like to think of it as energy in and energy out. And so again, the body has this ability to process the energy. It can partition the energy, meaning that um, it can make a decision whether it wants to immediately use the energy that comes in or to store that energy. The body can make a decision whether to take stored energy and use that or not as well. 
and then think about the energy uh, going out. So that's the energy that's needed to uh, make the body uh, function. Also consider that it takes energy to process energy. And then there's feedback. Now feedback is very common in biologic systems. Um, it's a self-regulating system. And two examples of feedback are satiety and hormones. So a little bit more, it's fair to say that metabolism is quite complex. And there's many hormones and biochemical pathways to be considered. Now, one hormone of importance is insulin. You think of it somewhat as a master hormone, but there are many hormones at play. But it is a uh, fat storage hormone is another way to think about it because in its presence, it, it is a signal to store energy, that of an anabolic process. Um, insulin also regulates energy, that of energy homeostasis. And basic physiology, we know that insulin is most sensitive to dietary carbohydrates. And now let's consider what happens to the, uh, the processing of the food energy when uh, metabolic disease sets in. So carbs and easily digestible processed food typically drive appetite, but it gets worse when metabolic disease sets in. And we see hormonal dysregulation uh, at many levels, including insulin resistance, and we'll talk about that. And we see energy overload or caloric overload. And so important to understand in this uh, diagram, the food energy processing diagram, we're both considering the hormones and the calories are both important. So regarding hormonal dysregulation, let's talk about insulin resistance. And simply said, insulin resistance is uh, the body not responding properly to the insulin signal. Uh, more specifically, we can talk about the insulin resistance cycle that might help to explain this a little better. So on the top left, you can see that we, uh, we eat food. And let's say we overeat, the body has this innate ability to store energy. And so we can store it as glycogen or as uh, fat. Now, uh, glycogen stores, which are in uh, liver and muscle, it's a very small supply or a very small fuel tank compared to adipose tissue, which has the capacity to store almost 100 times the energy. So you fill up the glycogen stores rather, rather quickly. But as we continue to eat and perhaps overheat eat, uh, we can normally store energy in healthy adipose tissue, subcutaneous fat. And um, we might begin to gain weight as we begin to gain uh, fat mass. And so we need to now produce more insulin because there's more of us. And at some point, the healthy adipose tissue says, you know what, we have enough fat energy stored and we don't want any more. So we're going to push back and we're going to become insulin resistant at this point. And so the uh, pancreas, which is uh, producing insulin, and we see de novo lipogenesis in the liver are saying, hey, we have energy that needs to go somewhere. So we're going to raise our insulin levels and force that energy into the adipose tissue. And at this point, the healthy adipose tissue pushes back, becomes inflamed. We see oxidative stress and uh, at a certain point, it says, that's it. We really don't want any more energy. 
but guess what? The energy needs to go somewhere. So now we see it lay down in ectopic uh, fat locations, such as the viscera and uh, the organ fat. And these are locations where fat should never be anyway. And this leads to further oxidative stress and inflammation. And it, it basically drives our appetite. We see more insulin resistance. We see insulin resistance in the brain. And what do we end up doing? We eat more food and the cycle goes on and on. And so there's two endpoints here. Number one, the energy is literally trapped in the, uh, the fat tissue. Uh, we gain weight, we're overweight, we have adiposity. And this is because of the high circulating insulin levels, um, not letting the uh, fat energy out of the fat cells and also the insulin resistance. And the second endpoint is that we're hungry. It drives appetite. It's absolutely a terrible situation. Now, we do not see this just in the fat cells, but everywhere in the body, this inflammatory state, and we refer to it as metabolic mayhem. And the biochemistry is disrupted, and it leads to inflammation and oxidative stress. A little more on metabolic mayhem. So Dr. Jerry Shulman uh, did another Banting lecture uh, back in 2019 based on his mechanistic research. And he described insulin resistance as an energy imbalance and overload. And we see a topic lipid deposition and insulin responsive organs. Basically, as we said, fat is accumulating everywhere in the body. It leads to inhibition of insulin signaling. And we see a breakdown of the um, biochemistry at a cellular and a mitochondrial level. It leads to inflammation and oxidative stress, such as free radicals, reactive oxygen species, and advanced glycation end products. And again, it's not just these organs, we see it everywhere in the body, including the, the blood vessels, uh, uh, the blood vessels of the heart, the brain, and again, it's just metabolic mayhem. So this is where the low carb, high fat diet comes to the rescue. And we wanna spend a little bit of time discussing the conventions and what this is. So here's a typical low carb, high fat ketogenic diet where 70% of the calories come from fat. And yes, that includes saturated fat, which is a healthy fat, 20% um, protein and 10% carbohydrate. Now we could use any pie chart here as long as it wasn't that perfectly balanced healthy diet pie chart. The point is that the macronutrients are processed differently as we described. And so there's your first convention. And the idea is that it is the carbs that are fattening and inflammatory based on these metabolic pathways. And again, basic biochemistry and physiology that carbs drive um, insulin compared to protein and fat. Carbs trigger appetite more than any of the macronutrient. Now I'm happy to say that the ADA continues to recognize the benefit of low carb diets. It is in the guidelines, although it's not up on the top. I'm happy to say that the CFO of the ADA, I believe it was last year, uh, endorsed uh, strict low carb ketogenic diets. Uh, as she has been using it to reduce her insulin, actually get herself off of insulin 
lose weight and to control her uh, diabetes. It's a wonderful endorsement. Another convention, and what seems to make sense is that saturated fat by itself is not this cardiovascular disease villain, villain that the heart associations have been telling us it's so for the last half a century. It is much more complex. Again, we're looking at an inflammatory process that damages the lipoprotein, the cholesterol and the arteries themselves. And we also now understand that these seed oils, the canola corn and soybean oil are actually very unstable in the blood and lead to inflammation and damage when you compare it to mono and also the saturated fat that's very stable in the blood. Also happy to report that uh, last year there was a, a peer review study in the uh, journal of the American College of Cardiology uh, that said that limiting saturated fat is not supported by the current evidence. And that is true. So what happens when you treat insulin resistance? So this is a dam and this, uh, the water in that dam really represents uh, fat trapped in the adipose tissue. Again, when you're insulin resistant, the uh, energy is trickling into the fat tissue and trickling out. It is literally trapped. So how do you treat this? Well, you put patients on a low carb diet. You give them 40 grams of uh, carbs a day and you increase their fat intake. And what you find out uh, in, in particular, the diabetic or the pre-diabetic patient is that it controls appetite. They begin to lose weight. Their glucose levels drop. And most importantly, insulin levels plummet and it opens up these insulin floodgates and the energy that was trapped within the fat cell is now packaged up as lipoprotein and it's distributed throughout the body for um, energy. It's fantastic. So it's low carb to the rescue and there's this metabolic advantage for diabetics when you understand the mechanisms and the supposedly high calorie diet seems to be defying the laws of thermodynamics, but really it isn't, you're just not accounting for the um, calories properly in your equations. And we all know that eating less and less often is uh, spontaneous uh, in many of these uh, individuals that go on low carb diets. And there's a psychologic advantage because we're not focusing on deprivation, we're focusing on mindful living and uh, uh, an approach that controls appetite and satiety. Now, perhaps calories don't matter here. Well, consider this. You have a type 2 diabetic that has to lose 40 pounds. So you put them on a low-carb, high-fat diet. Appetite's controlled, and they begin to lose weight. And they, they might naturally eat less. But I can tell you, after they lose 40 pounds, if they continue to eat the same quantity as food as they were in the beginning, they're going to hit a plateau and gain weight. So uh, the idea is that the quantity and the calories do matter. And the focus, however, is still on looking at um, a diet that controls appetite so people are not as hungry and just naturally eat less. But we have to consider both hormones and um, calories or quantity of food. And that brings us to metabolism 101. So there's two schools of thought. And so we have the calorie camp or the calorie in, calorie out camp. And we have the endocrine camp where they're looking at hormones. And I tell you the vegans, 
and the meatheads, they get into this every year, every January. And in support of the calorie camp, we have the vegans calling it the January as a, as a means for celebration. And on the endocrine side, we have the meatheads calling it organuary. And so what I submit is that we get these two groups coming together in perfect harmony to form the School of Food Energy and Metabolism. And the best part, it is a bipartisan approach. I love it. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about heart disease. And most important to understand is like everything else we've been discussing, we're dealing with a metabolic process and um, specifically when it comes to atherosclerosis. And we see damage to the lipoprotein that carries the cholesterol, the cholesterol itself and the blood vessel wall. And we address it by looking at insulin resistance and the cholesterol quality, not necessarily the quantity. And the quality of the cholesterol you can measure by looking again at the triglyceride to HDL ratio, uh, particle size, and so forth. And the proper measurement in this way helps us to better predict risk. Now, what did Dr. Kraft have to say about atherosclerosis? Well, he said those with cardiovascular disease not identified with diabetes are simply undiagnosed or simply said, uh, diabetes is a heart disease. So you need to address it in this way. Now, I think it's clear in the literature that there is this strong correlation or connection between heart disease and diabetes. But unfortunately, when it comes to clinical me uh, medicine, uh, this relationship becomes a bit muddied. And we see this all the time. We have patients that are diabetic that come into our office that don't know that they have heart disease. And then we have heart patients that come in that don't realize that they have diabetes. And even worse, their clinicians are clueless. So that's unfortunate. And the question is, why is there such a disconnect? Well, welcome to the Framingham distraction. Yes, that's Framingham, Massachusetts, where back in the 1950s, they studied the population for decades to see which ones had heart attacks and which ones didn't. And based on the Framingham work, they came up with uh, these uh, risk factors that we know as cholesterol, smoking, hypertension, and diabetes. And yes, diabetes is in there as a risk factor, but it's really at the bottom of the list uh, based on the traditional um, Framingham work. It, 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 it was un underemphasized. And since the Framingham work, they have come up with additional guidelines, tools, and risk calculators, all with a central theme to lower the bad cholesterol. Therein lies the problem because they're not addressing the root cause, which is diabetes. Diabetes risk is buried, and that's what they should be addressing. But I'm happy to say in 2018, the American Heart Association guidelines are getting better. They finally, and I kid you not, have included the metabolic syndrome as a significant risk factor for heart disease. Also, they've included the coronary artery calcium score in the guideline as a decision maker, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But when it comes to heart disease, this is really how we should be looking at measurements. 
And uh, interestingly, this is a, a study by Finney and Volek uh, looking at diet and comparing low fat to low carb diet. And the bottom line here is that all the metabolic markers improve on, on a low carb diet compared to a low fat diet. And so the markers in the yellow are all improving, all improving. And the, the numbers on the top really look at atherogenic dyslipidemia. And you can see that the APOB to A1 ratio, uh, which are advanced lipid testing, those numbers drop. Saturated fat drops, triglyceride to HDL uh, drops. The HDL goes up, which is favorable. And then on the bottom of the chart, you can look at things, uh, insulin markers such as, um, again, insulin, home IR, glucose, your abdominal fat drops, your body mass drops. So these are all associational studies, but you can clearly see that um, these metabolic markers that should be measured uh, improve on uh, the low-carb diet compared to a uh, low-fat diet. So the bottom line, when it comes to cardiovascular disease, it's the insulin, stupid. And I'm referring to my dear healthcare professionals and to understand that we're dealing with a metabolic disease. It's not simply about this supposedly bad cholesterol. And if you focus on the bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, which is what they told us to do for 50 years, you're going to miss so many people at, at risk. And we like to say if a weren't for LDL cholesterol, perhaps everybody would be on a low carb diet. And so this talk is about nutrition. And so we're addressing cardiovascular disease with a diet and lifestyle modification. It's, it's not about medication per se. So a little bit on cardiovascular imaging. Imagine if we had a tool where we could look in and directly visualize the coronary arteries and see the disease process itself. Well, we have such a tool. It's called the coronary artery calcium score. And again, it's, it's based on direct visualization of the disease process itself. Um, and you have to understand that um, this direct visualization, it's not a risk factor, it's the disease process itself. When you compare it to say a blood marker looking at a, a, a standard lipid profile, which is just associational data, also important to understand that uh, the calcium score really provides us with historical data as to what has been going on. Whereas blood markers are very useful because they tell us the current state of the situation. Kind of like um, the gas tank is measured by the uh, calcium score, whereas the fuel is looking at the blood markers. And we use this as a tool to track progress and most importantly, to motivate people. And again, as I mentioned, uh, the calcium score is in the 2018 guidelines um, as a decision-making tool rather than a screening tool, but we really do like using it as a screening tool as we'll describe here in a minute. So here's your coronary artery calcium score. And so it's a CT scan of the heart. It uses a tiny bit of radiation and it, it takes uh, multiple images of the, uh, the heart while the heart is beating, and it looks for calcium, which is uh, kind of the tip of the iceberg within the coronary artery where the plaque is underlying. And so it takes a picture, it adds up the calcium, and you get a score. And so we have two different patients here. On the right, you can see um, an individual 
who has um, calcium building up in the left anterior descending artery in the red. And that artery, we call it the, the Widowmaker artery for obvious reasons, because that's where most of the blood is pumping to the heart. And that person has a very high score and has a very high risk of having an event in 10 years. And if you look at the individual on the left, in green, you can see the left anterior descending artery, there's no calcium, so that's a zero score. And so here you can see the beauty of direct visualization, right? So it's determined the risk by looking at the disease process itself. And so you get this calcium score and you look at all the arteries, the LAD, the circumflex, the right coronary, you add up the calcium and then you get a score and you can see with a zero score, your, your uh, risk of having an event in 10 years is less than 2% versus having an, a, a thousand score, your risk goes up to 37%. And important to understand that this is all based on 40 years of uh, research that is uh, reproducible and quantifiable. And uh, important to understand that the 2018 guidelines do talk about uh, statins with higher scores, and we do have that conversation with our patients. Of course, with all else being equal, um, the guidelines don't really address diet like we do. But most importantly is that we should not underestimate underestimate the importance of uh, diet and eating real food and how it can affect um, our cardiovascular risk. Some clinical assessment. So important to realize this, this talk is all about insulin resistance, but it's not always insulin resistance. So we have different uh, body types that we have to consider when we see patients. So we have insulin sensitive and insulin resistant individuals. And so here are two insulin sensitive types. And on the upper left, we have the slim, insulin sensitive, metabolically healthy, metabolically um, uh, flexible uh, individual. And we hate that. That's really a very healthy person. We joke never take dietary advice from those individuals because they never had a problem. But uh, again, a snapshot in time and their status could change as, as, um, as, as, as they age. And then on the right, we have um, uh, the overweight insulin sensitive individual. And so you measure the metabolic markers and they're actually pretty healthy, uh, but yet they're not at their ideal body weight. Now these individuals, unfortunately, uh, we see a lot of women that fit into this uh, category. And you can put them on a low carb, high fat diet and it may rapidly control their appetite, but, and, but they lose a few pounds and, and then they very rapidly hit a weight loss plateau or the weight begins to come back up. And so the approach is really different with these individuals. With everybody, again, the focus is to find a macronutrient mix that controls appetite so patients aren't, health, aren't, aren't as hungry and they, they, they eat less and they eat less frequently. But for these individuals, um, you want to think about eating just enough fat to fill, which actually is true for everybody on the long, on the long haul, more protein, protein is healthy, and uh, they don't have to be quite as restrictive in terms of uh, the carbohydrate um, consumption. And so we can compare this to the insulin resistant groups. And this represents two thirds of the uh, adult US population, again, as I mentioned. And so on the bottom left, we have these slim individuals uh, that 
can develop diabetes without gaining much weight. And we refer to them as TOFI, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. And we see a lot of Asian population that fit into this category. And then on the right, we have the typical type two diabetic that's overweight. And again, these individuals respond best to a low carb, high fat diet. But again, you have to consider um, if you're dealing with insulin sensitive or insulin resistant individuals. And so that's why we have this uh, insulin spectrum uh, chart that is important to consider where we are on the spectrum. So we have the insulin sensitive on the left, the insulin resistant on the right and everything in between. And then this can change throughout uh, the lifetime. Now here's a chart showing the five types of lipedema. Now, when it comes to the insulin spectrum, there's nothing unusual. Uh, lipedema patients are insulin sensitive and insulin resistant, just like the rest of the population. And so with our lipedema and lymphedema patients, you have to consider where they are on the insulin spectrum. And the, the concept here is that low carbon keto assists, assists with the mobilization of the subcutaneous fluid and the salt that is uh, building up. It aids in the lymphatic drainage. And important to understand that the, the lymphedema uh, fat is really a challenge, but uh, the dietary approach really uh, addresses the um, factors surrounding uh, this difficult uh, fat tissue. So clinical evaluation. And this is for our clinicians out there, early level of suspicion and to do the right measurements, because if you don't do the right measurements, you're not going to know there's a problem. You can do anthropomorphic measurements. You can measure body fat, body composition, waist to height uh, measurements are useful. Simple standard tests, such as a fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, uh, standard lipids, we do this testing right in our office. You can do advanced testing if you wish. Some more nuanced testing such as the insulin, the HOMA-IR, the C-peptide, HSCRP. These are insulin and inflammatory markers. And then what we've been doing in our office for over 20 years is the two-hour glucose challenge with insulin. And um, I tell you how many patients, I can't tell you how many patients we have uh, measured normal glucose, normal A1C, and yet their insulin levels are off the chart. So this is a great tool, again, to make an early diagnosis. And then the cardiovascular imaging that we just talked about. So this is really a summary of the guidelines for a treatment to a healthier life. So we wanna reduce processed foods, the sugar, the grain, the industrial seed oils, and we wanna eat real food nutrient-dense foods that really help with satiety. Um, we want to control the carbohydrate intake. We want to prioritize protein. Uh, High-quality uh, protein is important, and we want to fill with fat. So again, long-term, it's not about gorging with fat, but just to eat enough fat to fill. If everything's going well, uh, it will naturally control appetite. But again, we have to consider uh, yes, the quantity and the calories are important like the hormones, but again, the main focus is to try to find the macronutrient mix that best controls appetite for the individual. How about the common themes? Let's call it low-carb Mediterranean. We joke nobody knows what a Mediterranean diet is, but it sounds healthy. 
But in this context, we talk about uh, a diet that's low in carb and it's meat and vegetable based. Uh, supplements can be considered in some individuals. Most important, we must address sleep, stress, and sunlight. Uh, we're not going to make any progress uh, without addressing these. And I know it's been tough over uh, the pandemic that there's been a lot of stress and people have uh, gained weight and we want them to get back on track and be optimistic for the future. Movement and activity are important. We're not trying to balance this energy equation, but there's cardiovascular benefits, there's psychological benefits, uh, building up muscle mass helps with insulin resistance. And when it comes to pandemics and viruses, the idea is that we wanna be a healthy host should the virus come knocking at the door, we can fend it off easily. And then uh, basic patient education and support and to uh, embrace our patients to make change. And this includes the lipedema population as well. So this is our last slide. And the point is of the entire talk that food can be powerful like medicine. Now, I'm not the first to say this. It was Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine that said it thousands of years ago. But I think it's fair to say that we weren't listening up until now. So that concludes my presentation. I want to thank you for your time and I hope you enjoyed it.